with the words of the prophet Jeremiah again. Your words were found, and I did eat them. And your words were unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. I doubt there's anyone in here who would say that they ever feel, don't feel like they lack personal faithfulness. And when we look at this lack of faithfulness, it's ultimately a lack of faith in Jesus Christ. For if we had great faith in the greatness of the gospel, we would have a greater faithfulness towards God. This morning, if you find yourself in one of these states of unfaithfulness, then you should avail yourself to God's transforming means of grace, God's word, the reading of scripture, reading of biblically sound literature, prayer, the sacraments, fellowship with fellow believers in a grace-driven community. You can begin right now by hearing the preaching of God's word. Let the word of God transform your life so that you can have greater faithfulness unto the Lord in his kingdom. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of, Hag- of uh, Haggai, as well as in your bulletin is the outline. I encourage you to locate that. And let's together fellowship around this passion, uh, this portion of Scripture. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19 is the section we're going to look at today. And uh, it's a wonderful additional oracle that God gave Haggai at this time. And um, it would be a delight for us to feast upon it this morning. Family God, this is God's word. Let's therefore stand out of reverence and respect as it is read. Let's, let's stand. Hear now the word of our Lord. We read on the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with the fold, or cooked food, wine, or oil, or any other food, will it become holy? The priest answered and said, No. Then Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, what they offer there is is unclean. But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time, when one came to a grain of heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten. And when one came to the, to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. Yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from the day onward, 
from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, uh, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. As Father, reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of fellowship in your word now. God, feed us richly, we pray, as we um, come with open books. Lord, may our hearts be opened. And Lord, we know that's a work of grace. So Lord, condescend and enable us now to feast upon you as a body, corporately and individually. And Lord, may it be um, more as we go to, to, uh, to the table. Bless this time of communion and fellowship with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 92 contains a description of a healthy, robust Christian. Listen to what it says. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. What a vivid description of a healthy Christian. It's a description of what I want my life to be in Christ. The, the imagery, flourishing like the palm tree, speaks of glory and gracefulness. Being like a cedar in Lebanon speaks of strength and majesty. Flourishing speaks of a lush, a lush uh, think of a subtropical or tropical paradise, a lush tropical paradise. Yielding fruit in old age speaks of never burning out, but always serving God, no matter how old that you are, and being full of sap and very green speaks of ultimate health, vitality, and richness. Brothers and sisters, that is what I want my life to be today, tomorrow, and the rest of my life. That's what I want my walk with God to be like, and so do you. Yet how do we secure such a beautiful description of the child of God? How does it happen? The passage at which we're looking this morning helps answer that question. You recall 538, Cyrus issued a decree for Israel, God's people, to go back to Palestine and rebuild the temple. And only 42,360 people came. That's it of the millions that were, were there. But of those 42,360, the vast majority by far were zealous. They were the cream of the crop. They were the ones who cared, who grieved about the holy place. And so they went back with a sense of zeal and excitement only to come to the Temple Mount and see that it was far worse than they could have imagined, there to be greeted with persecution and difficulty, and then to endure a 17-year drought in Palestine. Well, throughout all this time, God's people were discouraged, became uh, discouraged, and they began to shrink back in their, their faith. So God raised up two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai is the text, is the prophet we're currently on, and it was Haggai, not Zechariah, but Haggai, the God used to initiate a revival amongst God's people in 520 AD, or BC, 520. Um, he came and preached God's word, and, and God's people repented. They turned, and they came back to, to faithfulness and fidelity in terms of, of, of rebuilding that a temple. And you know what happened? 
In our text this morning, God proclaimed his blessing upon his people. And that blessing, you have to understand, is as, as if the Lord Jesus walking in the midst of winter through a, a grove of, of trees, and everywhere he steps, spring breaks out. The trees, as he walks by, goes into their, their full bloom. And as he leaves, it doesn't happen. But the, the, the blessing is that growth, that flourish. This Psalm 92, 12 through 14. God's blessing would be upon them. Now it's bigger than that, we understand. In this case, it's blessing the land, the produce. But that's the blessing. And so we have before us a text, which is what I've titled the key to covenant blessing. Because it tells us what went in to verse 19, I will bless you. So let's look at it. We're going to begin by looking at the backstory, which is 11 through 17. So follow along as we walk away through this text. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, verse 11. Ask now the priest for a ruling. The word for ruling in the Hebrew here is Torah. It's the same word that is used to refer to the Pentateuch, the Torah. Well, the word Torah originally has this idea. In fact, it still does. And that is it refers to an authoritative declaration of a binding truth. It's an authoritative declaration of a binding truth. Okay, give us that. And that's why today, uh, modern Judaism calls the first five books of the Bible the Torah. Or they'll even call all 39 books of the Old Testament the Torah. It's a binding truth, authoritative. Okay, so that being said, he asks for this authoritative statement. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or, or any other food, and the idea behind that is with his fold of his garment, will it become holy? So if I've got this holy garment carrying holy meat, and it touches something, does that become holy? And the priest said, no. And that's, that's, that's consistent with Scripture. Now, brothers and sisters, Haggai didn't need this. The people did. And so this was a way to get the people involved, just like when Jeremiah spent, what, two or three years building a, a uh, uh, or no, one year building a, uh, um, a, a toy model of Jerusalem in the center square every day playing army men. Do you remember that? Or when Isaiah walked around for three years naked. Okay, that's some of the actions. Well, this is sort of that. He's getting the people involved. Hey, I got a question for you, priest. If this happens, what's your ruling? And all God's people are going to be listening. And his answer is, it will not be be holy. Now, it revolves around this little phrase, holy meat. And that's an uh, interesting statement. It comes from the sacrificial system. Quick re- review. You know that the Old Testament sacrificial system had three movements. They began with an expiatory sacrifices, which dealt with sin. They then moved on to a dedicatory sacrifices, consecratory sacrifices, which deals with dedication, giving yourself unto the Lord. And then it climaxes with a communal sacrifice, which was typically the peace offering, as in the Day of Atonement. Well, of those sacrifices, the primary ones were the sin, burnt, and peace offering. Those primary three dealt with the meat completely different. For example, on the dedicatory sacrifice, the burna offering, the entire animal would be burnt up. The priest would take a knife, think of Hebrews 4.12, take a knife, 
cut the animal up, rearrange this animal on the altar of burnt offerings, picturing and then burning it all up, picturing total consecration to the Lord. The, the, the third sacrifice, the communal, was primarily the peace, like in Passover. And the peace offering was a lamb that would be sacrificed, but the animal, the carcass, would go home with you, the worshiper. And outside of a large celebration like Passover, you would invite your local priest and you would sit down and have a fellowship meal with the proclamation, with the implication that fellowship between you and God by virtue of the priest has been restored. But the, but the meat of the, of the sin offering, completely different. And that offering, as you know, you would come to the temple or to the tabernacle gates or door, and you would lay your hand on that animal with a statement basically that this animal's me. I, this animal is me. And um, there would be a confession of sin depending on the, the type of sacrifice for what it was for. And then the priest would hand you a knife and you cut the throat of that animal. And at this point, the priests would take over. They'd take back that knife. They'd drain, they would uh, 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 collect the blood from the neck of that animal um, in a bowl. And then they would wipe blood on the four corners of the altar burnt offering. And then they would pour the rest of the blood out at the base of the, of the altar burnt offerings. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And at one point, Christ said, this is, this is my, my blood poured out. That's the exact same phrase. Okay, pouring the blood out at the base of the sacrifice is a glorious picture of, of uh, forgiveness. And then they would, di they would dissect or, or at least cut up uh, the animal, uh, placing the choice viscera on the, on the altar. The fatty tissue over and, and, and on the entrails, two kidneys, their fat, and an appendage to the liver. All would go on the altar burnt offerings. But then the carcass of the animal would be given to the priests for their support. So at the end of a day of service, you would have a large piece of meat that you, according to Leviticus 6.25, was holy. This meat was holy. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. you got to realize it. Okay, this meat is holy. And so he'd wrap it in his garment, in the picture of flesh. And that holy meat would make what it was wrapped in, whatever it touched, it would be holy. But that holiness, according to Leviticus 6.27, could not be passed on from that garment. The meat made the garment holy, but the holiness cannot be passed on. Jesus Christ makes you and I holy, but we can't give God's holiness to other people. That's something God does. So the ruling is, can that garment make other things holy? The answer is absolutely not. Only God can make things holy, not man. Very good. 13. Well, let me ask another question. Haggai then said, if one is unclean from a corpse touches, I'm sorry, if one who is unclean from a corpse touches any, any of these, the same exact things, the bread, the, the, you know, at market, will the latter become unclean? The priest answered, once again rightly, it will become unclean. Complete opposite. Holiness cannot be given, transferred from me to you or you to me. But sin, sinful thoughts, sinful desires, sinful inclinations certainly can. In fact, they not only can be transferred, but they can desecrate a, a place and a people because of 
the nature of sin. And that is why in scripture there are so many passages that exhort us to be wary and be careful about other people's sin. For example, John or Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said to his disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking about their sin, their false teaching. Be careful, man, because that's dangerous. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You can only be pulled down by other people's sin. Their sin will never build you up. It, all, it has this fantastic capacity to pull you down. And that is why Paul says in Galatians 6, Brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you too be, be tempted. So sin has this ability. My sin can, uh, can influence you, and yea, more than influence you, it can taint, it can desecrate a land in which we live. Okay, well, that kind of desecration, that kind of, of um, like a virulent, a virulent disease to infect, that's what sin did to the people of God at this time. Notice with me verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me. Real quickly, there's a lot of debate on the word nation here in commentaries. Because Israel as a nation was destroyed. The, the nation's out of existence. So why are they calling this a nation? Because it's not a political nation or a geopolitical nation tied to a, a particular land. It's a religious nation. 1 Peter 2.9 calls the church a holy nation. Islam concerns, uh, views themselves as a holy nation. What that means is it's a nation beyond borders, that goes beyond. And that is what um, God's people were at this time. They were a religious nation that did not have borders that was in Babylon all the way into Palestine because of where they were currently living. So um, a, lot of, a lot of older commentaries um, mixed that up, messed all that up, and they tried to make nation in reference to the Samaritans. And when you take it in reference to the Samaritans, it messes this entire me uh, message up. So, so modern scholarship say, no, that's all wrong. Nation here is in reference to the religious nation, not the geopolitical. Uh, that being said, and, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. This is a review. We've already seen it in Haggai 1, verse 6 and following through verse 9. God talked about the, how, how God's people as a community, as a nation, defiled the land. Recall that in Scripture there's two kinds of discipline. There's private, there, there's, there's a personal discipline, not private. There's personal. And personal discipline typically is proactive. That's the discipline you and I have. Right now you're being disciplined by God. The preaching of God's word is a form of biblical discipline. It's proactive discipline. Fellowship is a form where God comes and another brother comes up and says, Hey, how is your walk? What are you struggling with? That's all proactive discipline. Okay. Then there's reactive. And typically that's in the context of a covenant of communities or personal forms of, of church uh, discipline. Matthew um, 19, or I'm sorry, 18. So, um, um, but what, but we're not talking about that. In terms of the corporate body, God enters into a covenant with the corporate body. And if that corporate body fails to obey God, God disciplines it. 
And he disciplines it in a variety of different forms. Deuteronomy chapter 28, you will recall, is one such expression of this discipline. Listen to what it says and think of what you've just read. But it shall come about if you will not obey the Lord your God. He's not talking to the individual Christian. He's talking to the covenant community, the religious nation. Here in this case, it'd be the uh, geopolitical. But he says, if you will not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all the commandments and, and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the, the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in and cursed shall be you when you go out. Okay, so this was the curse that corporate sin can have, the impact of corporate sin of a, of a, a covenant a community can have in the land in which they live. And that's exactly what happened to the land of Palestine when God's people came back in 538 and as a holy nation rebelled against God. Notice with me verses 15 through 17. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when, you, when, when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there'd only be 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would only be 20. So what's happening to this stuff? Are they getting stolen? No, the text goes on. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, and hail. And yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. For 17 long years, they suffered under the, the uh, punishment of God as a corporate people. And not one time did they go, we're going back. They remained where they were, recalcitrant as a corporate body, happy to focus on themselves. God called them to come and build the temple. They came back and built their own private lives. Their houses, their private houses look great. Their own uh, private lives may have been wonderful. But I'll tell you what, it was anything but wonderful. Because they were living under famine, under drought, under difficulty. We know that they were being persecuted. We know that there was fear and the whole bit. And yet, God sent Haggai 520 AD or BC. He comes and he preaches as you uh, have a little chart there. Haggai 1.1, August 29th, 520 BC. In fact, it was September 21st, 520, when God's people responded positively to the re a message, and they turned. And that brings us then to the blessing. Notice, because of this turn, the blessing. Notice, 19, is the seed still in the barn? And the answer to this question is no. And there's a reason why. Would you notice the last oracle, chapter 2, verse 1, was given on October 17, 520, which was the last day of the Feast of Booths. That's from last week. Well, do you know what happened in the calendar year after August 17, 520, after the Feast of Booths? God's people would spend the next two to two and a half months planting their fields. So the seed that was in the barn, that would be their next crop, it's not in the barn Haggai says, is the seed in the barn? They're like, no, it's planted. It's in the ground. Notice he then goes on. It's not just the seed. So it's been, it's been three months 
since October, October and November, no, I'm sorry, two, I'm sorry, two months since October. They've been now farming for two months. Where's the seed? It's planted, Haggai. And then he says, look at the trees, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree. Basically, they're bare limbs. They're just twigs. It's winter, guys. There's no tree, or there's no leaves on the trees. There's no blossom on the vine. They're in their winter mode, which just looks dead. He says, look at that. Look at the field, newly planted. Look at those, at those vines. Look at those trees. And then he says, God's blessed them. This is like... <sighs> This is like Matthew, where Christ uh, on Palm Sunday proclaims himself to be the Messiah. Guys, this is an incredible statement. You, or or from this day on, I will bless you. So this is a huge change. For the last 17 years, 18 years, they've been suffering under judgment because of their sin. And come December 18th, 520 B.C., God's blessing or God's judgment is now completely taken away. And now God's people are living under the blessed hand of God. And yet, I want you to think with me on this one now. What what did God's people do? At this time to be blessed. I want you to notice the oracle, the second one, Haggai 1.15, was given September 21st. That's when they repented. Most of us are going to say, they repented. They obeyed. Brothers and sisters, they repented and obeyed three months before this. So what happened on December 18th, 520, that made September 21st a little bit different? I mean, what what was so unique about December 18th, 520 B.C.? And the answer is nothing. Absolutely nothing. October, um, what was it, 17th? That was the last day of the Feast of Booths. I mean, most of these other dates come to say, oh yeah, this day is special because... December 18th, universal testimony of every commentary that I've looked at. This has absolutely no significance in the context of, of, of Jewish thinking at this time. Nothing. Zero zilch. So why did God bless them? It wasn't because they obeyed. It wasn't because they re- repented. They had re- obeyed three months before that. They had repented three months before that. So something happened December 18th that all of a sudden made this a blessing. What was it? And that brings us to the basis. The basis of the blessing. What is it that that happened? Well, the answer in this particular case arises out of the nature of Hebrew writing. Remember, we've talked a lot about it. Greek is more inclined just to say it. Hebrews more inclined to show it than say it. And any time you've got a situation like we do here, in verse 10, you've got, you got the dating like the other oracles, exactly like the other oracles. But unlike those other oracles, this date is repeated, and it's repeated at the climax, at the, state, at the oracle of blessing. Notice with me verse 10. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year of, of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, December 18th, as your chart says, 
And beyond that, nothing significant about this day. Absolutely nothing. Except what makes this day significant is that in this oracle, it's repeated twice. Skip down to verse 18. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, same exact date, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider. Now the word for consider we looked at when we were in chapter 1, and that is it, it simply means to sit back, step back from where you're living, from the microscopic focus, step back and look at the big picture from the perspective of God. Consider what you have lived through from the perspective of God. That's the idea behind uh, consider. And when we do that, we immediately look at verse 19. And what I just talked about, was that a blessing? Okay, where God ends with this incredible statement. Man, where's the food? Where, or where's the seed? Look at those trees. They're blessed. Right? Woo, blessed. They're living under the blessing of God. Okay, well, great. However, you must also see that this, that this declaration of blessing, this benediction versus a malediction, for the last 17 years, God's people lived under a malediction. That's what Isaiah gave himself when he said, woe is me. That's a malediction. This is a benediction. God, in this benediction, proclaims this incredible statement. On this day, mark it, on this day, the blessings of the Lord have returned to you. Now you go, what's the significance of this day? What did they do? Well, the text simply says, notice verse 18, the phrase, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded. Once again, a lot of controversy about this, this expression. The foundation of the temple was founded with Solomon. And there's no way that the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C. would have moved those foundation stones. Remember, 12 by 12 by, what did I say, 40 100 tons. There's no way the destruction of that temple in 586 moved the foundation. So most commentators are saying, this is not saying they finally finished the foundation. It's not saying that. Most say, this is looking back to all the work that they've done and the continued work that they're doing. In essence, what God is saying here is, brothers and sisters, from the day you, you repented, September 21st, You've been laboring on this temple mount, and it's continuing. That's how we take this. So what is it? What is it that produced this glorious covenant renewal in the lives of God's people? Was it their obedience? Not alone. What was it? It was their responding favorably to the word of God over the course of three months, when the rabble were persecuting them again, Ezra 5, when Tatanai, a governor, Ezra 5, came to the Temple Mount and threatened, and he did, wrote a letter, give me your names, leaders, I'm putting your names in this document. When Darius reads this, remember Cyrus was the one who appointed this, not Darius. When he reads this, he's going to be, oh, he's going to be mad. And he's going to come back here and say, you are threatening the peace of my, of my empire. We're going to kill you. So they're living under that. And they're living under three more months of drought. 
Do you understand that? September 21st came and God's people responded. And guess what God did? Nothing. Nothing. But they responded. And in spite of the situation, in spite of the oppression, in spite of the external threats, in spite of the personal want, the fact that we don't have enough food and it's difficult, they kept serving God. In fact, why did they keep serving God? This is a huge one. What is it that produced this faithfulness? We've got to go back to the last oracle, which, which we just saw, October 17th. What, what is it that kept them going? We saw it last week, 4 through 6. Their understanding, their apprehension of the character of God. It wasn't a promise of blessing. It wasn't, you know, if you do this long enough, God's going to bless you. You don't read that. All you read is, hey, guys, don't grow weary. Stay the course because your God is awesome and good. So what is it that, what's the key to blessing, covenant blessing in the context of God's kingdom? It's not obeying God alone. We have this idea that, man, things are going rough in my walk. Okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll start being in the Word of God daily. I'll come back to church. I'll tithe. Um, I'll do what I used to do. I'll call people on the phone, and God will change my entire life. And he doesn't. And what happens after that? The Christian says, then, I, then it doesn't work. It doesn't work. God's deaf to my cries. He's deaf to my pleas. I'm struggling, and he doesn't care. Brothers and sisters, you know what God blesses? He doesn't bless great acts of devotion. Because God's people, basically what they had done December 18th was the same they did December 17th, which was the same they did the 16th for the last three months in the midst of trial and difficulty. What does God bless? God blesses God's people who respond to his character with fidelity. That's it. You want to be a green, lush plant towards the end of your life? From this point on, be faithful as a response to the character of God. Don't be faithful to get God to give you something. Don't be faithful because that's the, the because God, this holy being, lives for you to obey. He can't live in a world where you're not obeying him. That, that, that just blesses his little soul. Brothers and sisters, don't live that way. And, and that may be a little silly, but we do live like that. We think because if I do these things, if I do my part, God will do his. That is not what's going on here. God's people did their part for three long months, and they struggled the entire time. What is it that made the difference? Nothing that they did. The blessings of the Lord were lavished upon them because it pleased God. But, but does God bless the disobedient? He does not. Does God bless the Christian who serves God because of what God's going to give him? He does not. God blesses the child of God who simply lives in response to the character of God and serves. Faithfulness. That's the theme of our service this morning. We did, I didn't, I, I, 
link these two, and that's the theme of this text. It's simply, it's a God-wrought faithfulness. It's a faithfulness that comes from the character of who your God is. That, brothers and sisters, is the key to all covenant blessing. You see this, brothers and sisters, throughout God's word. A flourishing walk, listen to it. Job 1.20. When Satan took everything from Job, the devil thought for sure that Job would curse God and die. Do you remember that? Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground of worship. Do you know what he did there? He did the same thing he'd been doing for 50 years. Just was faithful. The same could be true of Daniel when he prayed. He'd been praying three days a, a, a or three times per day for 70 years. When he got to that, to, to that decree, if you prayed anything other than, than the, uh, Darius, you, you'll be killed. The God, brothers and sisters, this wasn't a massive moral act of courage. It's what he'd been doing for 70 years. Through thick or thin, droughts, difficulties, threats to, to his friends, he kept praying. Same thing Job. Job's been worshiping God now for 40, 50 years, his entire lifetime. And when all of his life fell apart, what did he do? He just, he just did what he's always done. Faithful to the Lord. Why did he do it? Well, if you read the rest of Job, and you've read it, I'm sure, you know that there's facets about God's character that come out, even in the midst of Job's struggle. Let me give you one, Job 19. At one point, Job says, as for me, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he's going to take his stand on the earth. Even after my flesh is destroyed, yet, or skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God my eyes shall behold not another. My heart faints within me. I, I can't wait for that day. What is it that drove Job? Why did he pray? Why did he worship? He did what he did for all those years because it was the overflow of a love for God. In contrast, Mark chapter 7, quoting Isaiah chapter 29, 13. Remember what Christ said to them? They were obeying. Boy, were they ever obeying. But this is what we read. Right, let Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it's written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. These people go through all of the obedient motions. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. And yet God says they're displeasing. Why? Because it's not the overflow of a heart in response to who God is, his character, his greatness, his awesomeness, and his goodness. Brothers and sisters, God blesses fidelity driven from the character of God. That's what God blesses. Okay? A life of, of faithfulness. That, oh, that is the overflow of a heart that says, I love you, God. I care about you, God. You're awesome. You're glorious. You're good. Luke 12, Christ told the people, Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Now listen, he gives a, a benediction. Blessed are those saves. In other words, are those slaves. The, the covenant blessing of God will be upon them. They will, they, will, they will bloom and blossom, Psalm 92, in the midst of difficult circumstances. They will thrive. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, and here's the blessing, he will gird himself to serve. And then 
have them recline at the table and would come up and wait on them. This is a foretaste of First Peter. We already read about it, First Peter 1. The last uh, day, the, the marriage feast of a lamb, first day of glory. Christ is going to come up to each one of us, serve us, giving us praise, glory, and honor. Wow. Now, why? Why were these slaves blessed? What was the basis for their blessing? He goes on, 41. Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everybody? And basically, Christ's answer is yes. And the Lord said, and this is key, who then is the faithful and sensible steward? This is a steward who's sensible. He's thinking and he's doing it because he's being faithful. He's not doing it to get. He's sensible, which means what he's doing is in response to his master's character. This is the faithful and sensible slave. Incredible. Whom his master will put in charge of the servants to give them their, nation, their uh, rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. God is after, brothers and sisters. Paul was after in his ministry. Not fantastic starts. Not fantastic acts of obedience. But just simple, plain fidelity to God because you love him. That's it. That's it. You spend the rest of your life devoting yourself to to just being faithful to the little God's given you. Not great things, just little things. Whatever he's given you on your plate. You're retired. You're older. You've got um, um, health issues. Your job is to suffer well. That's it. God's not asking you to be a missionary in Africa. He's just saying, suffer well. Play the man. Trust me. Follow me, even when it's difficult. That's what he told Job. And Job's response was, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's the call. If you're a young person, your call simply is to be a faithful child and a faithful sibling. Striving to respond to your mom and dad and their care and their pastoral care. Be it good or be it bad. If you're a wife, your call is to follow God as he leads through your husband. Whether that husband's a fool or a wonderful man, doesn't matter. The God, God hasn't changed. Your call is to follow him as he leads. It's simple, simple fidelity. Nothing big, nothing grand, nothing great. That's exactly what God's people are doing. What grand thing did they do today, December 18th, 520 B.C.? Nothing. Today's like yesterday and the day before, but for the last three months, what have they been doing? They've been living in response to the character of their God faithfully. That's it. It's Christ, John 17, 4. How did Christ glorify God? I glorified the Lord, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. That's how he glorified God. He didn't glorify God by raising the dead. He glorified God by being faithful to the call. What is your call, Christian? What is your call? We could say immediately, well, that would involve being with God on, on, a, on a consistent basis. That's your call. Learning to respond to his word, on a, even though you don't feel it, on a consistent basis. That's your call. And whatever is in the Jerusalem in which you live, ill health, loss of job, difficult relationships, It's can you remain faithful in response to God even though the world around you is falling apart? I've got people for three months. And I'll say this more so. That's not just three months. That's God's people their entire life. These people who came back. 
Brothers and sisters, it is this that stands out in this text, the basis of God's covenant blessing. God's people hadn't done great things for the Lord. Rather, in the face of trial, opposition, and famine, they proved faithful to the little he asked of them, which was working on the temple. And why were they faithful? Because verse 4, God was, was for them. God endorsed them. He said, man, the world may hate you. You're my glorious child. I love you. Secondly, all the resources of God were at their disposal as he dwelt amongst them in their, in their midst. In the last three, verse 6, their God who was, was for them and working among them was all-powerful and unthwartable. That, those three little statements, three little truths, they responded to it, and it made all the difference in their life. And brothers and sisters, uh, this is the universal theme of Scripture. You see it throughout Proverbs. I love this passage, 1515. All the days the afflicted are bad. Whether you're saved or not saved, whether you're a sinner or a saint, whatever, right? If you're God's child or not, all the days the afflicted are bad. When you got cancer and you're dying of cancer, you don't have a whole lot of good days. When you're in a bad marriage, it's hard. When you get fired and you're on your own, it's hard. All the days the afflicted are bad, but it ends. But a cheerful heart has a continual feast. You know what a cheerful heart is? It's a heart cheered by God. It's a heart that responds to the character of their God. It's, it's the psalmist Asaph going to the temple and, 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 and struggling with the success of the wicked and, 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 their, and their fatness and, and how they you know, throw it around and, and him going, I just, I'm, I'm done with Christ. I'm done with, with uh, Christianity. Serving God is of no benefit. And then he came to the sanctuary of God. And then he saw God and he saw the end of, the, the, of those fat, wicked people, of those wealthy, posh people. And then he saw his end. And his end was to spend eternity with God in glory forever. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. I don't need their wealth. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's my portion. Not money, not health, not jobs, not success, not a better marriage, not a better child, not a better parent, but God. When that drives you, Christian, you flourish. Get this. But a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Man, this guy walked around with cancer. All the days they afflicted are bad. Bad days, horrible days. But every single day, it was as if he were at a banquet feasting upon his God. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, his disciples, boy, Jesus, you haven't eaten all day. We're concerned. You got to have a little bit of something. Here, have a Twinkie, right? Have something. Have, have some fast food. Jesus said to them, my food which means his life, his joy, his all. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The greatest thing that could ever happen to me, said Jesus, my greatest delight in the world is simply to serve God where I'm at. One of my favorite ones is Habakkuk. You guys go heard a sermon on this. Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk sat down in Habakkuk chapter 1, and he's upset at God. God, 
I look around the nation and they are in rebellion and you're doing nothing. Do something, God. I mean, rebuke them. Send down fire, something, God. Do something. God says, I'm going to do something. I'm raising up the Babylonians as, as we speak. He's like, wait a second, they're evil. Huh? Wait, no, I don't want you to do that. No, do something, but don't do that. That would be horrible. Don't discipline your people with those wicked people. And you know what? In the course of three chapters, nothing's changed in his life. Nothing. God's people are still bad, and the Babylonians are still coming. But in the course of three chapters, fellowshipping with God, Habakkuk goes from, from um, um, dissatisfaction and struggling with God to these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom. It sounds like God's people of Haggai. And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food. 17 years God's people live through this. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice. That means to, to, to be thrilled by his character in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. And he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. Brothers and sisters, nothing changed in this man's life except his gaze. Prior, he was being uh, faithful as a prophet. Prior to this time, his gaze is, is, is horizontally. All he could see is, is what's going on in his life. And then God draws his eyes up. Look at God. And what he saw thrilled his heart such that he could say, God... Bring it on. Let the Babylonians come through. Let the flocks fail. Let the fields fail. It doesn't matter, God. I've got you and I'm, I've got a banquet. I'm thrilled. I'm going to close with one more verse. Jeremiah. And it's a wraparound. In, 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 in a homiletical class, homiletics, I'm doing the classic wraparound. Introduction, Psalm 92, the flourishing garden. That's what I want to be. Well, Jeremiah describes how that flourishing garden takes place, and it's a summary of Haggai chapter one, uh, 2 and what we've just seen. Blessed is the man whose trust, who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. To trust in the Lord is to rely upon him. To trust to, to have your trust be of the Lord, that means fellowship. That means dialogue. That means communion. When that is true, he will be like a tree. And in the Hebrew, it says transplanted. Transplanted. That's what happens when you're saved. He transplants you from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his son, and he transplants you by water, Jesus Christ. And he extends his roots by a stream, and he, he fellowships with Jesus Christ. And will not fear when the heat comes. But its leaves will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought. Nor cease to yield fruit. Do you see it brothers and sisters? Daily fidelity. Fueled by the knowledge of God's love and grace. Results in a life that flourishes and is not anxious in a year of drought, nor ceases to yield fruit. Christian, this is the fourth oracle, part one. He gives us two here. Fourth oracle of Haggai. And it's very simple. It's, they're, they're so beautiful how, they, how they, they flow. 
revival started, and what happens after revival? Immediately you have the setbacks. That's the third oracle. He addresses the setbacks. And now they've been faithful for three months. And why? Because of their love for God. And what happens? God says, blessings. But we've got to realize that blessing, I love how, he's, how, how, it's, how he structures this. It is based upon nothing tangible in what they've done. Stop thinking God is waiting to be impressed by your life, by your godly living. I got to give more money. I got to do these great things, and then God will bless me. Get out of that. That's, that's Zeus. That's moralism. That's how people live with the pagan God. Unlike us, we live in light of the blessing of God, his, his blessed gaze. He loves you. And because he loves you, you respond with God. I don't have to do anything big. Just use me where, I, where you put me. And that's what your hope is. That's what your joy is. Content to fill that little space again if God be glorified. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible privilege it is ours to feast, literally feast upon this, your, your, your word. Father, I, I, I long for me, I long for my family, I long for this family, this body, to be as described in Psalm 92 or Habakkuk 3, to be that, or, or, or Jeremiah 17, to be that, that flourishing vine. But we know, Lord, it's not because of anything that we do that impresses. It's not about impressing, Lord. Rather, it's about responding in love, in awe, in reverence to you, our God, and doing what what is natural, and that's serving. God, I pray that you would continue that work in the lives of us, your people, Lord, as I've prayed so many, many times, daily, for years, God, may Bethel be a place where the worship is pure, the pulpit faithful, and your people respond to you, their God. That, Lord, you would be our, the apple of our eye, that you would be the object of our hope and faith and love and joy and confidence. That, Lord, we could have an afflicted life, but enjoy a continual feast because you're near and by faith we behold you. God, grant Bethel to be a place. Grant us this day, all of us young and old, to respond to your greatness, to your glory, to your character, to your love. And Lord, may that therefore inspire in us not a short pick-me-up, but a life of devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.